Monarch of MonarchAstrology.com, bringing you the astrology forecast for July 14th to July 20th, 2021. We will have Pallas Athena in Pisces and Chiron in Aries, each station retrograde. Retrograding planets become like infused, louder energies in the sky. And then the Sun in Cancer will aspect outer planets Neptune in Pisces and Pluto in Capricorn. Pallas Athena is a strategist goddess. In Pisces, she may point to our capacity to work with imagination-based tools like visualization, though to be fair, Athena already is very much about visualization, about having a image in our mind's eye and then projecting it out into the material world through um, just understanding how to get to a place that we want to go. Athena can see the strategy or see the game plan and then execute it. There may be important reasons at the moment to activate our imaginations, like there's a future that's wanting to come forth, but we have to imagine it first. So there can be that vague sense of longing or discomfort or something and feeling into, well, what could I add to this moment? What could I generate? What could I create? What can I visualize to change things right now? This is happening simultaneously as Chiron and Aries also stations and becomes a louder frequency in the sky. This may highlight an existential sense of loneliness or having to go at things alone. Needing to source the courage, for example, to go first, to go out on a limb, uh, to take a first step in a direction that you don't necessarily see other people taking, but it's, it's coming through. And then we have the sun in relational, emotional cancer, aspecting the outer planets. And this highlights a sense of potential emotional overwhelm. So feeling larger flows of emotion than goes beyond a conceptually proportionate context. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because when I say that, there is um, already patriarchal conditioning that really devalues emotions or sees it as irrational right? So that sense of, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Like there's already that going. Then there's having an emotional response that's bigger than the event um, because it, you know, with the outer planets, we're talking about things beyond us, right? So that is flows from the universe or a transpersonal thing or the collective or some intergalactic, like whatever it is, it's way bigger than us. But that also speaks to our ancestry or our subconscious. Um, Even our subconscious fans out into the collective. You know, the deeper you go within, the more it uh, unfurls out to something transpersonal. So when we... um, And then if we want to look at it actually too, from like an evolutionary biological lens, we may feel lust or passion, for example, towards another person. And that's a huge feeling. That's a huge sensation. And it's not just us who's feeling that it's a multi-million billion year process of the universe evolving and uh, the development of Eros through, you know, all of these different creatures on the planet that have that intrinsic motivation to connect and procreate and whatever. And so I don't like to get too dry or too scientific about it, but to think about, yeah, you're turned on, for example, but there's a huge lineage of creatures before you that have developed that biological attunement, right? So we feel this um, sensation, but it, it really does go beyond us, right? Or like you feel grief, And it goes beyond the moment. It's an archetypal grief or it's an ancestral grief, right? And so just acknowledging that we may be running things through our personal channels that are much, much larger than us feels like a tidal wave sometimes, right? And so then with the sun also aspecting these outer planets, there's an opportunity to also feel at home in the cosmos um, to see how we actually aren't alone at all but are part of a multidimensional ecosystem. And as much as the particular pain point of Chiron and Aries may feel otherwise, this pain point says, I am alone. I am ultimately alone. I live and die alone. Like just a, 
you know, I walk this path solo. Like that is the feeling state really. And in some sense, it's true. Like we are on a sovereign path. There is a degree of individuation or just existing as a separate being that is true, but we are also part of an interconnected web in so many different ways, right? Like even our, um, electron particles are like going in and out of being part of our own structure and then bonding with the environment around us, or we're breathing in the air, right? Like there's, um, always this dynamic exchange. So when you, when you really break it down, nothing is separate. It doesn't exist that way. So both the loneliness of being an individuated being and the connection of being one with the universe can exist simultaneously. We're alive as individuals even because people cared for us in our infancy when we truly could not go it alone and survive. We can stay emotionally contracted when we are trying to hold on to far more than our share of whatever it is, stress, anxiety, responsibility, right? Like it's interesting because it's this paradox of, yeah, we have to take accountability. We have to take responsibility. We have to like be on our path. Like there is that side of it. And then there's also the um, becoming too full of that sensation and not having a way to release it or to kind of be held in that by something larger. So this can go into asking for help um, or just talking and moting with loved ones, as well as reaching to spirit guides and angels. Um, this can go a long way in creating community and well-being. And, you know, I always love to hear how people pray. I think um, prayer is a really important technology and um I probably say this every time I bring up prayer, but people have um, a response to that word that's emotionally charged because of, say, like religious conditioning and having this fixed idea of what prayer looks like. But there's all these different creative opportunities with prayer. So, for example, when feeling a lot of emotion that you're, you're feeling past your bandwidth to hold it. Right. And so you can have a prayer to expand your capacity, right? You could also have a prayer that like, let's say you're wanting to move the emotion in a particular way, asking for support and comfort from the angels and spirit guides support and carrying, you know, or transmuting whatever this burden is that you're carrying and seeing You know, there's something about this field right now. I'm working on um, the astrology of 2022 for the Kickstarter, which I'll talk a little bit more about. But we have this Jupiter Neptune in Pisces conjunction coming up next year. Uh, But given that Jupiter is in Pisces and Neptune is also in Pisces, there's something in the air right now, I feel, around um, a more dramatic sense of our prayers being answered. And so learning what magic words exist for you in terms of what things you ask the universe for and feel like you actually receive um, could be an interesting spiritual experiment to play with this week, especially if you're, you know, you're getting that sense of being flooded and you want to offer that as a prayer and ask for support carrying this or ask for support integrating whatever it is that you desire, um, asking your spirit guides for that assistance. So before we get into the week in more detail, I have a few announcements to share. One is that you can join my mailing list, link in the notes, um, to receive the weekly forecast in written version with the links to the YouTube, um, every week. You can also find me on Instagram at Sabrina Monarch. I do, you know, post to stories and share things that um, you're not going to find here on this channel or this podcast per se. Um, I do also share this um, transmission to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. So you can find the forecast most week on YouTube and Magic of the Spheres. Um, Getting on my mailing list is a great way to stay in touch and also to find out when my bookings for astrology readings open. Um, At this point, I mostly only tell my mailing list about that. 
So I am running my second annual Kickstarter to fund a year ahead of these forecasts and Magic of the Spheres podcast. Um, This June marked the beginning of the seventh year of writing weekly content and broadcasting weekly these forecasts. I'm super excited and grateful. We're at $20,305 right now, which passes last year's. We made um, $20,008 and we had 115 backers. So we're a few backers away from passing that. So thank you so much. And if you haven't already supported and you love these forecasts, um, please show the love. (laughs) Like it takes a lot of energy and labor and love to produce this content every week. And so this is a way um, to ask for your support in doing that. And I'm also offering a lot of really cool things um, like talks, a new creative writing course, discounted tuition to the next evolutionary astrology intensive. Um, So the link is also in the notes to check out the Kickstarter. You know, you have um, six days to go. It's uh, ending July 20th at 8.32 a.m. Pacific. So I would just say July 19th to keep it safe. You know, don't wait till the last minute. Um, I always get emails and stuff after deadlines. And, you know, if you know you're that person, just go ahead and like get on top of it and don't wait till the last minute. My novel, The Garden of Sleeping Hammers, is out right now. You can get it through Barnes & Noble. I have the link in the notes. Um, I'll be working on getting it distributed through more channels soon, but for now you can grab a uh, soft cover or hardcover copy. The next evolutionary astrology intensive will begin in November of 2021. You can get half off tuition through the Kickstarter. This is like pre-enrollment. Um, so if you have been wanting to take this course, you know, you're, you're ready. Um, go ahead and sign up through the Kickstarter. Um, After the Kickstarter is over, I will um, go ahead and add, you know, normal, like full price enrollment um, to the course page. So you have just a couple days to grab that um, half off tuition. Image Hive is a new um, creative writing course that I'm offering. Um, You know, I've it may be the only time I offer it. Sometimes when I teach things, people are like, I want to join the next one. It's not always, not always the case. So we'll see the reason, um, you know, image hive is coming through as this like alive being. And it's something that I'm doing, um, as part of the intention of the Kickstarter is to like offer new fun things to teach, um, that aren't necessarily part of my mainstay, like being an astrologer, teaching people astrology, creative writing is something, you know, that I've been doing literally my whole life. Um, I remember my first journal, like when I was five or something like that. And I've been writing every day ever since, uh, studied creative writing in college have been part of writing communities. Um, so I do know a lot of craft and a lot of technique and have a lot of, uh, waxing poetic kind of things to say about writing as well as, you know, things to offer in terms of opening your creativity or your vision. Image Hive is about image centered writing and the craft, not just of the writing, but of cultivating image in your writing and also the craft of seeing. Um, so I want to share something that I wrote and shared to Instagram the other day. Um, that's an image hive transmission. There are two writing states I want to highlight, effortless and effortful. In the effortless state, you are not really trying at all. The words flow through your channel. You've already built that channel with your practice. Your eloquence is a result of your practice. You're just picking the ripe fruit. In the effortful state of writing, you are struggling to reach something more transcendent with your words. You don't have the language yet, but you're reaching for it. A lot of people will give up here when this is actually the resistance training that makes you a better writer just like we work with resistance and strength training for the body. Now let's take this a level deeper to perception itself. There is what you already see, and then there is what you could see if you reached a little deeper with that flame ever lit behind your eyes. Image Hive is about the craft of writing that is centered on the image, but it is also a course to practice the art of seeing, a valuable, often invisible skill behind beautiful writing. 
So just a couple days left to join Image Hive via the Kickstarter link in the notes. Um, I'd love to see you there. We're already gathering a really electric, amazing group of people. And I think it's going to be lit and it is a live course. Um, we will be spending class time together. There will be space outside of class to share your writing and to talk and to get to know each other. And, you know, one of my favorite things with teaching is to cultivate community, um, community where people feel expressed and feel like they can be themselves and really connect with each other at an authentic level because we have that permission in our group field. So those are my announcements and I will get back into our week. July 14th. Palace Athena stations retrograde in 27 degrees of Pisces at 12.42 a.m. Pacific. So the strategist goddess stations and stationing bodies become louder or more present and focused energy in the sky and our experience. Athena and Pisces could relate to more nuanced approaches to spiritual cultivation, one's understanding of working with the flow or the Tao, or the arts of manifestation and visualization. You know, for for people on the outside looking in who aren't interested in spirituality or would call it woo or whatever, you know, it seems like it's just a bunch of floaty nonsense. But when you are tuned into spirituality um, and can feel into the nuance of it, then there's room for these kinds of strategies of understanding how to align spiritually. So I think Athena and Pisces would be working with things like that, for example, um, one of the things that comes to mind is like when we want something and the energetic of gripping tightly onto something actually closes off our receptivity toward having, right? So understanding that subtle energetic of like the harder I grip, the, the less easy it is to actually enjoy or have that thing. Um, it's like those energetic understandings and then learning what it's like to be in desire or to have longing and to hold more of a receptive magnetic energy rather than that clinging, gripping, contracted energy. Right. So those are subtlety. Um, those are subtle energetics that I think Athena and Pisces could be concerned with just as an example. Athena herself, not simply when placed in Pisces, relates to our capacity to form an image in our minds and to create and materialize that image in the world. This is like a, the business person who visualizes a seven-year plan and the steps to carry that out and then sets off to do just that. Athena gifts us with the generative, creative powers of mind. So there is some kind of affinity with Athena of like one, being able to visualize the plan, see the bigger picture, and then to actually have the um, discipline or willpower, et cetera, to carry it out. So there is quite a, a masculine kind of energetic to Athena in some sense. Um, there's also kind of an androgyny with the Athena archetype in terms of this kind of birthing uh, generating a vision from within, but then externally creating the structure to manifest it. In Pisces, this Athena placement emphasizes the skill and intellectual understandings that accompany spiritual development and awakening. So maybe there's certain, you know, spiritual texts that you connect with or spiritual uh, teachers, right? And the language that they're speaking may have a lot of Athena and Pisces energy in it. And it's like how to intellectually, like what's the map here to understand with our minds and how do we then attune to these spiritual energetics as a result of that consciousness? There might be a component here of disillusionment regarding our ambition. Athena is extremely ambitious. Um, realizing that we have lost our way or gotten too invested in the material world. So by material world, I mean results, getting ahead, accolades, status, how it looks on the outside, basically. 
and not as much the spirit behind the work, like the why, like what's actually fulfilling about it. And of course, accolades and status can be fulfilling on some level, but there's a a sense that if that's the main thing that's being focused on, there can be a hollowed quality. Um, And so the disillusionment of, oh, I've gotten this thing and I'm not happy or I didn't get this thing. I'm not at that top of that mountain and I am judging myself or feel bad about myself for it. Um, When it's like, what's the real reason that you are doing this thing? that is behind your aspiration or ambition. So when we are too invested in the material world and the material world is still important. I don't mean to create like a a spirit material split here, right? They are like connected and that's like what we're doing here by being souls, having a human experience as well. Um, But just when we forget ourselves or forget the internal and get too overly invested in the external. Um, not only is it harder and more effortful to be successful at the endeavors, um, but it's less fulfilling as well. So this station or retrograde of Athena and Pisces may promote a needed remembrance of the spiritual undercurrents in our pursuits and the deeper connection of service that we have beneath our most adept and keen strategies in the material world. Now, to reverse that, if you are deeply tuned into spirit and you're having more trouble in the material world, then Athena's retrograde in Pisces may be about um, translating some of that inner richness to how you are creating structure on the external to match that. July 15th, 2021, the sun in 23 degrees of Cancer will try Neptune retrograde in 23 degrees of Pisces at 1.49 a.m. Pacific. Still Cancer season, super emotional. And this is a flood of emotion, not just cancer season, but the Neptune trine. Be prepared to extend compassion to yourself and others. Throw out a lifeline and call upon a loved one or ask for support. If you are struggling, check in with other people. If you sense something, um, offer your emotional waves as a prayer to source or deities that you work with as well. Potentially the most difficult part of any challenging emotion is our resistance to feeling it, but a transit like this promotes surrender. Being able to hold and breathe into the waves and allowing others to meet us there may feel soothing in a transcendent way. There's something really interesting about this kind of Cancer Pisces energy or Sun Neptune in in the sense that When we open up to greater levels of love for receptivity, say through um, a healthy, positive bond or relationship or our spiritual opening, but when we're softened and we kind of open into this greater field, then sometimes some things come up because now we have the love and the bandwidth to process them, right? And Likewise, to flip that energetic, sometimes when we are just dealing with some kind of um, challenge or difficulty, it's like there is this almost like angelic presence around it or this compassion that constellates to hold it. So just thinking about like Sun and Cancer trying Neptune, there's a there's a lot of content, both, you know, transpersonal, larger than us, but also unconscious content that can come up. And just thinking about um, compassion is a really important, you know, compassion and care. Um, and those words can get thrown around. Right. But if you are feeling into yourself and how you're talking to yourself and how you're treating yourself, if you are beating yourself up or if you're persecuting yourself or if you're judging yourself, that could be a signal to really soften and be much kinder to yourself. Um, 
during this kind of transit because there is such a healing capacity with Sun and Cancer trying Neptune um, and also kind of an overwhelming um, energetic to it as well. And so thinking about what it means to really dissolve a layer of the ego, like to really feel um, cleared out right? So some kind of emotional mood passing through that clears you or readies and prepares you for some next beautiful gift that's wanting to come your way or some thick layer of your ego that's keeping you from being connected to others around you into the universe, getting, you know, pummeled by a big ocean wave and it hurts for a second or it's kind of confronting, but it clears you out and opens you. Um, there's such an importance, I think, to softening and to opening so that we don't, um, require such shocks or such big things to crack us open, but that we're already, you know, used to opening. Uh, but I do think that, you know, wherever we're at, there's something about this sun Neptune trine that I'm like, yeah, it's washing away something. So remembering that as you're in that, um, like ocean waves crashing over you kind of moment, um, if you are already having that, or if it comes up this week, Chiron will station retrograde in 12 degrees of Aries at 9 41 AM that same day, just like eight hours later. It's interesting that this should happen around the same time as the Sun-Neptune trine, which can both emphasize our sensitivity to feeling the potential pain of this transit, as well as our sensitivity to healing and dissolving layers of pain. Chiron correlates to pain points and wounds, things that live within the soul or the collective psyche, and get activated when we are triggered or insulted or affronted. It's like something stings because that was already a wound and we just put salt on it. Like there's already a pain point there. It's um, we're pointed to it through things that rub up against it. The pain point of Chiron and Aries could be our stories about loneliness, having to go at things alone, um, not seemingly by choice. We're feeling like we're having to fight for our seat at the table we're more existentially fighting for a right to even exist. And I don't necessarily mean that literally, but a felt undercurrent. The Sun-Neptune energy, on the other hand, is so universalizing. Chiron and Aries says, I'm alone. But the Sun-Neptune aspect says, I'm held by unseen forces in the universe or support materializes when I express my need. So there's something really interesting too about like, if we truly believe that we're alone and we're in that kind of um, state, like we'll call it a state, we can feel the universe kind of colluding with that state. Like it does feel like we're deeply alone. Um, and then when we kind of are able to clear kind of shake loose that state it we do feel kind of enveloped by the universe but it's interesting how even in our belief of being alone the universe will hold us in that belief it's kind of ironic feelings of loneliness are also paradoxically universal loneliness can be caused by a lack of self-disclosure putting on a false self, not approving of our emotional needs or allowing others to meet us there. So when we're not authentic and we're building a relationship with life and our community and the world around us from a place of inauthenticity, yeah, it's going to feel lonely at a deep level because the core of us is not being touched. There's like a non-access to it. So some of these feelings of loneliness may actually be able to dissolve if we have the courage, also an Aries theme, to open up to people in places that we normally don't. This is kind of Aries cancer tension, like courage to be oneself and to be um, 
met emotionally there. Not every environment is that supportive, right? But the courage to find out <laughs> and have reality reconstellate around us and our authenticity more than keeping in place uh, these inauthentic dynamics and walking on eggshells, you know, to use that metaphor, which feels kind of like that uh, cancer image too. Alternately, sometimes during an initiation, external support seems to dry up. We may be surrounded by people at certain chapters in our lives who don't understand us, even if we reach out. I've definitely been there, like feeling something, putting it out there and like literally feeling no one pick it up. Like, oh, I am alone <laughs> as I thought, you know, like and just that being the karma at the moment. If you feel alone at a level that is not just in your own head or by your own self-isolation, so you reach out and nothing seems to catch you. I understand how difficult that is. Um, during a time I felt this way and mostly only felt understood by professionals, healers, psychics, astrologers, etc. One of them told me um, that during a dark night of the soul, there are less people there to catch you because this initiation is yours. So people will fall away because it's your initiation to hold. So trust, you know, if you are in that state that it will pass and get better, but it may be your strength that is called upon for now. Like that part of the hero's journey, Chiron and Aries, where you are being tested to go at something alone. Like sometimes that's real too. And certainly if you do have people to commune with who get it, consider your tendencies to self-isolate and where you are being called to open to being seen and loved. And maybe these dynamics are coexistent at different areas or places in your life too. But I just wanted to kind of give a, um, a lens of multiple possibilities here. And then July 17th, the sun in 25 degrees of Cancer will oppose Pluto retrograde in 25 degrees of Capricorn, sun opposite Pluto, 3.46 p.m. Pacific. So I actually came back to a forecast that I wrote last year for the same exact transit, sun and Cancer opposite Pluto and Capricorn, though it occurred in different degrees. Um, I'll leave the link to that forecast. It's um, there's a lot in that forecast that may just be kind of relevant again if you want to read it. So the link will be in the notes. Um, I had thoughts in the introduction of this forecast on the primordial energetic gateway of tears and emotions. So some thoughts on the Sun-Pluto opposition. I've excerpted from that last forecast. And um, when I wrote this last year, I was really fresh from doing some research, reading um, Robert Bella's um, Religion and Human Evolution or Religion and Evolution. I'm forgetting the exact title. Um, and I learned some things from this book that I just... Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget. Like it was very mind blowing um, kind of read and kind of change the depth of how I see just like emotion and emotion and human community. Given that cancer and Capricorn are an axis of care, right? Like cancer is very nurturing, very caring, very emotional. And Capricorn creates the structures and parameters. So if you've ever been to um, some kind of ritual space or an event, the event organizers or the people who made sure that there was lodging or that there are certain, you know, ground rules, like that's kind of Capricorn stuff, but it did create the container for you to open and have an experience. So cancer Capricorn are both very caretaking, very protective archetypes. And Pluto is very primordial. Like Pluto is ancient. Pluto is um, kind of like dragon dinosaur, um, just like deep volcanic kind of energy. Like there's um, a long history or the intensification of Pluto in Capricorn. It's like the deep history, the deep, deep, deep history 
um, deconditioning socially, like understanding what's beneath what we think is normal and going ever layers deeper, right? So we can unpack history, we can unpack biology, like whatever it is that we're going into, there's these deeper and deeper implications of what we, what's normal now. So I wanted to share some thoughts on the deeper instinctual drives that come from wanting to offer or receive care and or protection. And there's an Eros here too. Um, I'm, I'm just going to say it, but <laughs> in this like cancer season, I, um, I go in and out of like watching things on Netflix and whatever, but I was really feeling like, okay, I need, I need a show to like, uh, like a bedtime story. And I got really into Virgin river. <laughs> I binged the whole thing. Um, it's a romance. I love romances. Uh, a good romance series is just like good for my heart. Right. But so cancerian, like cancer Capricorn all over this show. There's so many scenes, at least, you know, multiple times per episode, someone's in emotional distress and someone else is like, are you okay? Right. And like the person will maybe say, like, try to pretend that they're fine <laughs> or they will like just break out into tears and explain what's happening. And the other person will just like give them a hug and hold them. I'm like, there's a deep Eros in that. Like that is the the arrows of feeling safe to express, to feel love, to feel held, right? Or to protect, to see someone you love and want to care for them, want to see them happy. Like that's not just the plot line of this show. That is like billions of years in the making when we look at it from an evolutionary lens. So from Religion and Evolution by Robert Bella, there's a passage exploring the evolution of care and love in organisms, which I'll read and then I'll share a translation. So here's what Robert Bella wrote. But the origin of love, and he's citing someone else here, but the origin of love he finds in parental care which unites the parents and their offspring and is clearly excellently united in reinforcing the bond between adults. We drew attention to the fact that only animals that care for their young have formed closed groups. They do it all by means of behavior patterns of cherishing, behavior patterns of cherishing, which originate from parental care and by making use of infantile signals which activate this behavior, Infantile signals is also a phrase that has just never left my consciousness. <laughs> it's like a translation of uh, someone showing emotion. It sounds so sarcastic, um, but it's also it's used here seriously, but it just makes me laugh that that's now like part of my inner vernacular. Anyways, the translation of this is that in the evolution of mammals, the practice of being attuned to one's young was adaptive for survival. And this isn't to reduce everything down to some kind of uh, everything's about survival and love is like only here because it helped us survive. Like love, I think, is actually a deeper energetic in the universe. So not implying this with this argument, but this sense that um, the way that evolution worked mammals who were born, not like turtles who just hatch out of an egg and are like free to swim and like self-sufficient mammals are born with this extended kind of, um, need for care or they don't survive. So we have that protective mama bear, protective lion with her cubs, you know, a lot of mammals, like we're just born vulnerable. Right. And so to actually survive, our caretakers had to have the skill set of noticing when we were in need and then taking care of these needs. So infantile signals from baby mammals activates parental care. So the one with the capacity to care looks for need and the one who needs care signals the need. So thus, when I see the characters on Virgin River being sad and someone being like, are you OK? And wanting to take care of them, 
there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot behind that, not just culture and humanity, but, uh, the evolution of mammals. And so I think when we, we go into the emotional state of what it's like to feel needy or to feel dependent or to feel, um, like we need care. We want to care for others to think about the history of that emotion and the context of that emotion in some bigger sense. Like it is really big seismic. So another quote here, he also notes what he calls the flight drive, the natural response of a startled animal to seek refuge with a conspecific, which means same species, particularly the most powerful conspecific available is rooted in the child rushing to its mother at the first sight of something unusual. So feeling scared and running for help, feeling emotional, running for care. Our impulse to seek support and to be of support runs deeper than our lifetimes and even deeper than humanity. It is embedded into the evolution of mammals. I'm focusing on mammals here, but it is not to say other groups of species do not exhibit care or love. We're just talking about mammals. Uh, Mammals give birth to offspring which have to be nurtured and cared for for a time. Offspring which are not ready to survive on their own while they develop under the protection of more powerful and mature others. This underlying primordial dynamic is powerful and invites our development of maturity and learning how to navigate it. For one, being in distress and seeking support can induce love and connection. It can build family and kinship-like connections. It's community building. You know, like if we're totally invulnerable and don't allow people in, there's a bond that also doesn't tend to get formed at a deeper level. If this forms a bond, this care, giving and receiving of care, forms a bond that goes deeper than the mind or intellect because it is literally so primordial. On the other hand, disparities of power are complex and tricky and can be sites of abuse or abuse of power. You know, we're also looking at Pluto in this dynamic. So even the whole concept of patriarchy is this kind of like continued relinquishing of inner power to be protected or saved by some other on the external. Like that's, um, Perry Chase has really helped me like understand that logic of like, that's what continually gives life to the patriarchy is that damsel consciousness wanting protection from the external. So there's a empowered or meaningful or community building way to be in true vulnerability and connection versus the uh, manipulative or disempowered ways of seeking someone else to hold the responsibility of our our stuff. The line is not super clear, right? Like it's a wisdom path to understand and to find those energetics within ourselves. So more simplistically, vulnerability is a power, powerful connector and source of bonding and trust is important here. Do we trust who we are opening up to? Do we trust ourselves to be sovereign? Do we trust ourselves to be aware of our boundaries? Cancer and Capricorn are very protective archetypes and they each have their own way of being guarded. With Cancer, it's the hard crab shell that protects the soft, gooey crab on the inside. With Capricorn, it's walls, boundaries, and procedures that reduce ease of accessibility. Gates. Sometimes our work is lessening these defenses so we can be more open to life. Sometimes we are already open to life in a way that's overly not uh, honoring of our life force. And the work is having defenses and boundaries because we are worth protecting and not everyone will treat our life force with the respect we desire. So, you know, one of the examples that I can think of is like just the character structure of wanting to give other people the benefit of the doubt and having this kind of internal guilt or desire to care for others that 
results in a person putting themselves in personally compromising situations to be a good person or to care for another person. And in so doing, draining their own life force and not properly protecting themselves because they did have a kind of intuition or knowing that, you know, this isn't aligned or this isn't correct for me, but I'm still going to give or I feel guilty or I feel like I should do this. Um, And there's a hook in that, like there's an energetic psychological hook. Um, I was going to try to think of another example, but I'll just move on. So though though these dynamics that I'm talking about that we're exploring um, are highly relational and often involve two or more beings, these dynamics exist internally as well. Self-care, self-parenting, self-soothing, self-protection, etc. are ways that we draw upon these dynamics in our own being. Something also that's coming through in my field, um, I started reading this book, The Inner World of Trauma, Archetypal Defense of the Personal um, Spirit. And it's kind of a brutal read. I had to kind of uh, stop because the case studies are so devastating in terms of like the traumas that people are working with. Um, Like just slow, (laughs) slow with it. Um, But the interesting thing that's being explored here is essentially um, a lot of these situations, these, um, children were in these traumatic situations where they really weren't um, cared for, like their needs weren't valued by people around them. And so the um, archetypal defense, like it's, it's too complex for like, I'm, I'd have to like sit down to summarize this really well, but the part that I want to express is that a part of the psyche develops that is also self-persecutory. Like I wasn't cared for in my childhood, for example. Um, I'm not saying that about me personally, but like if that was me or the places that I wasn't, then I start to devalue those needs. So as an adult with that kind of trauma pattern, um, there's an inner persecutor that's like, shame on you for needing anything. Like that's gross. That's like way too vulnerable. Uh, there's like a tyrannical kind of shadow Capricorn energy that comes up that's suppressive, right? Um, so thinking about at whatever level, you know, these case studies are very extreme, like extreme violence, war, like these kinds of situations. Um, at a subtle level, we all have ways that we were... Um, feel let down in childhood or have childhood wounds and whatnot. And those places, I think there can often also be a, um, a constellated persecutor internally. That's like not allowing us to feel safe or open or cared for in that way, such that when we even do receive something that feels caring, if it's new to us, it feels scary. It's like all of those plots and movies about someone falling in love and they're scared and they run away or you've had that experience um, or you're happy and it's scary because you're like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Like there's just this kind of inner force uh, that's like you can't have that or clamp that down. And so part of inner parenting and part of caring for ourselves, I think, is actually protecting the preciousness of our vulnerability or the preciousness of our joyfulness, um, that it's okay to be emotionally nourished. It's okay to be emotionally fed and to see that if there are places where we have not felt cared for in the past and we have this unconscious kind of bully, that's like that need that's stupid. Like, no, that really kind of softening and kind of Uh, evolving that inner tyrannical figure to be more of a support, more of a protector um, than a villain is deep, not only shadow work, uh, but self-care work. And why I think we're getting so kind of intense about it too, is it's Pluto, the sun-Pluto opposition. 
in this very kind of care care oriented dynamic with very primordial biological unconscious historical kind of things in the in the brew but to bring it back depending on the range at which we inhabit these themes we might find ourselves on both sides of this axis receiving support giving support it is community building at this time and can increase love on the planet and you can always bring this home to yourself in terms of noticing when you're in distress and how you care for yourself versus how you punish yourself when you're in distress and moving that punishment energy, which is often unconscious, right? But for a lot of people, it's there um, into something more facilitating, supportive, kind, even if that is a place that's very new for you to be kind to yourself, to be compassionate to yourself. Sun Neptune will support that as well. So thank you so much for listening. Please support the Kickstarter. There's only a couple days left. Um, don't wait till the last minute. If you're watching this, you know, within a day or two of it coming out, I would say just go, go to the Kickstarter now. Link is in the notes. Um, lots of talks and uh, learning opportunities, courses, still a few booking reading, uh, booking slots for astrology readings with me are available. Those will also go. Um, so check that out and thank you for all your support. I forgot to mention at the beginning to like this video, leave a comment, but thank you so much for your readership, your viewership, your listenership, your enthusiasm for sharing this work with your friends. Um, for all of it. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to do this another year with you. Much love.